many years ago, if a story about the Free Church of Scotland emerged in a local newspaper or a national newspaper, almost invariably that story would be accompanied by the uh, very same picture. There would always be a picture of swings in a children's play park that had been chained up and taken out of use. And the point to the reader was clear. The picture was saying, the free church, that's those weirdos. You know, the free church, that's those guys with that sort of long list of rules and things that you are not allowed to do on a Sunday. So we were seen by many for a long time as being the sort of the Sabbath people. Now you might say to me, okay, Andy, Um, That was an awful long time ago and things have kind of moved on a little bit in recent years. What I want you to see though this morning is that in some senses that reputation still exists. Now of course I am not saying that for the ordinary people in London they look at us in here and think, oh those group of people are the the Sabbath people, the free church. The, The ordinary people of London regrettably know nothing of us in some senses. No, what I'm saying is that this reputation still exists in church circles, ecclesiastical circles. Like the more I meet Anglicans, the more I meet Independents, the more I meet Baptists, the more I'm beginning to be able to read their minds. You know, I I introduce myself to them and they look at me and they're like, oh, a Presbyterian, you know, a free church minister. That's those guys with the weird ideas about Samsung. Those guys with the harsh legalistic negative attitudes toward what we do on a Sunday. Do you see it? In some senses, we are still, for some people, the Sabbath people. Well, this morning, friends, as we turn to God's word, I just want to ask if this reputation is in any way justified. Are you a Sabbath person? Are we in here people who take the fourth commandment in any way seriously at all? Uh, More pertinently, perhaps, this London City Presbyterian Church, are we observing the Lord's Day in a biblical way, in a joyful way, in a Christ-centered manner? Are we Sabbath people? Well, with that said, this is what we'll do. Let me pray. And then we'll turn back to Mark's gospel. Let's bow. Father God, we are in desperate need of your illumination by your Holy Spirit just now. uh, We come to you uh, humbly and we ask that you might help us to understand from your word more about your precious holy day, but also that we might hear more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you show us these things? Would you shine your light on us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turning back to Mark's Gospel, if you can, if you've got a Bible in front of you, let's consider, first of all, the grace of the Sabbath. The grace of the Sabbath. Now, I think, to be honest... We could see the beginning of this section of Scripture as almost being kind of a farcical if it wasn't so close to how we behave in the life of the church. Isn't that right? I mean, do you see what's going on here? What do the Pharisees do at the beginning of this portion of Scripture? 
They are picking on how other people behave on the Sabbath day. Is that not very much like us and how we act? But look at this. What is the situation here? Well, Jesus' disciples are walking along on the Sabbath day. They're walking through the field and they are hungry. So what do they do? They pick and eat these heads of of corn. Now, the Pharisees, they see this. And they interpret that as harvesting. And they take this whole sort of Sabbath-breaking matter to Jesus. Now, interestingly, you'll see what Jesus does. What does he do with these teachers of the law? Where does he refer these teachers to? He takes them to Scripture. Doesn't he? He takes them to, to the Bible. And Jesus there responds by sort of citing First Samuel. And this instance where in the Old Testament, David himself goes into the temple on the Sabbath. And he takes some bread and he eats it and he gives it to his followers. Now, this is what I want us to do. You've got your Old Testament example of First Samuel. Let's put it on a sort of imaginary shelf for a moment. Let's just shelf the Old Testament example for a moment. We will come back to David. Just now, I want you to ponder the pronouncement that Jesus makes after that Old Testament example. So you just listen. You don't have to look. I'll I'll read it to you. I think it's verse 27, if you are looking. Jesus says this. He says, to these Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not not man, for the Sabbath. Sabbath made for man, not man. Wait a minute. I mean, that's a, that's a big statement. I mean, to see what Jesus is doing, just see that he has been really, really sort of critical of these Pharisees. Because if we know anything over the last number of weeks, we know that these Pharisees, they were almost guilty of, what would you say? Would you say they were almost guilty of worshipping the Sabbath itself? Weren't they? Like they'd added this whole plethora of different rules to the fourth commandment. And these were rules that they thought would protect the day itself. Do you see what I mean? It's kind of like how we are with our children. Like, I I don't know what your house is like, okay? Your household. But if your household is anything like ours in Woodford, then it seems to be increasingly the case that you need batteries for absolutely everything. You know, everything that we buy, you've got to go out and buy some more batteries. And that's fine, but the problem is you can't really leave batteries lying about when you've got little kids. Batteries are not compatible with little children in some ways. It's a bit dangerous. So what do you do? Well, uh, if you're a responsible parent, you know, batteries are in a packet, but that's not enough. So what would you do? you put the batteries in another box, wouldn't you? And I don't know where you keep your batteries in your house, but maybe you put it away in another drawer, don't you? You put it up high out of reach. And don't you see that that's what the Pharisees were doing with the Sabbath? They're adding all of these extra biblical rules here to try and make sure that nobody can almost get near to, to breaking the Sabbath. And you say, that's fine, but see these extra rules. They were impinging upon people's normal existence. Do you see that? Like they were impinging upon a normal, healthy existence. And so Jesus here stands before them and says, you're getting this wrong. You're getting it wrong. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never supposed to be a hardship. 
this day of rest was never supposed to be a burden for people. He says, you're getting it the wrong way round. Now, uh, in sermon preparation, sometimes uh, for a preacher, what God does in his grace is that he will focus a preacher on one word or just a couple of words. You know, you can kind of imagine it, you know, a preacher will have the text out in front of him and he's praying over the text and the Holy Spirit sort of burdens you just for a word, you know, just for a couple of phrases and you can't get it out of your mind. Well, here's the thing. I am praying that that is what happens to all of us here. I'm praying that in God's grace, what he does just now is he takes us all as a congregation and he draws us to the majesty and the glory of just the first few words that Jesus has said there. Think about what he says. What does he say? He says, the Sabbath was made for man. Do you see see the wonder of that? The Sabbath made for man. Do you see how gracious? Do you see what it means? It means that in creation, before there was sin, in creation, before there was ever a fall, what does God do in his goodness? He institutes a day of rest. Why? For the benefit of humanity. That it wasn't for his good. And it wasn't even as a sort of display of order, as we might expect from our God, or a display of power. He institutes this. Why? For the worth to the health of, of us, of man. And so keen was God for, for mankind to see that. What does he do? He himself enacts that day of rest in the creation. More than that, what does he do? He himself enshrines that day of rest in the Ten Commandments, in the Mosaic Law. Isn't it? Isn't it a gracious thing? Isn't it a marvelous thing? This day that we view so negatively in the life of this church, this rest that we either ignore or we add rules to that is actually the most beautiful, the most merciful gift from Almighty God to us. We are supposed to rest one day in seven. Why? For our own health, for our good. The Sabbath was made for man. Now, wait a minute. This is, this is the most sort of counterintuitive thing, isn't it? I mean, we live in London. You know, we're in the centre of the financial district of London. This, I mean, a day of rest. What do we do with this, people? Seriously. If we are going to take this holy day seriously, practically, what does it mean for you and for me? Let me give you three things to consider. One. If we are going to take the Sabbath seriously, we must not become the Sabbath police. We must not become the Sabbath police. I mean, think about these Pharisees here in this episode. Isn't it disgusting? But isn't it 
I mean, look at them, what they're doing, just picking on what people are doing and what people are not doing on this. Isn't it horrible? Let us not do that. Like, let us not take what is this precious gift from God and turn it into a vehicle for our wicked judgmentalism. Let us not become the Sabbath police. Second thing to consider, let us embrace the beautiful rest of the Sabbath. The rest of the Sabbath. Let me read this to you. I'm hoping that you're familiar with this. You may not be. This is what our confession says about the Lord's Day, about the Sabbath. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay. Uh, Writing about the Sabbath, it says this. So we're asking this question just now, aren't we? We're saying, okay, the, the day of rest is a gift from God. What does that mean? What do we do? The confession says this. The people of God should rest all the day. From what? From our works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. We should rest all day. And I know that this is a congregation of students. And I know it's a congregation of people who have got uh, high-pressure jobs. I know that this is very, very hard. But wait a minute, what are we learning here? We rest, and God, our God, is honoured by that. We rest. More than that, what happens? It is for our good. It's for our benefit. And then the third thing, let us embrace the worship of the Sabbath. See, all the way through Scripture, this day, the Sabbath day, is also referred to as a holy day. Now, you know what that means, don't you? It means that one day in seven has been set apart by God for God. It's a holy day. I'm I'm also wondering, did you piece the reading together? Did you see it? Wait a minute. Did you see where the disciples were going? when they are walking through that field. Now, it's kind of obscured a little bit in the NIV. Where are the disciples going? On that Sabbath day, the disciples are going to the synagogue and they are going to worship their God. And is that not it? Is that not what it is all about? Is this day not a day that is to be full of rest, but also a day to be full of worship and praise of our God? Friends, I tell you this, we need to get far away from the idea that on Sundays we come to worship. Let's lose that idea and let's recover the idea that Sunday is a whole day for worship. And I know that this is hard. Like, I I tell you, I I prepare this sermon with trepidation. I know that this is a controversial subject. But I do want you to, to understand this. Your physical health, your mental health, and your sanctification, it is all integrally tied up into your observing of the Lord's day. This is a day of rest. This is a day of worship. But praise God, it is a day made for man. So we see the grace of the Sabbath. Second of all, 
Let's consider the mercy of the Sabbath, the mercy. So we've seen the grace of the Sabbath. Secondly, the mercy of the Sabbath. If you look at your Bibles, um, you'll see that as we go into chapter 3, we're almost kind of going into a second section. You see that? And what we find is Jesus, he enters into a synagogue in this kind of second section. And as he does so, Jesus walks straight into, in the synagogue, straight into more opposition. Now, we're kind of going to do what we did with the Old Testament example. We're going to leave the opposition just for a moment. Actually, what I want you to to think about is the issue that the opposition focuses and kind of revolves around, centers on. Do you see what it is? Who's in the synagogue? There's a man there with a withered or a shriveled hand. He's in the synagogue. Now, if we're going to understand this miracle or this interaction with this man and these Pharisees, do you know what? There's a ludicrous detail (laughs) that we have to, to understand. And it is ludicrous, okay? In the eyes of the Pharisees, You were only allowed to heal someone on the Sabbath day if, you ready for this? Only allowed to do it on the Sabbath if the person was about to die. If he was going to die that day. That is ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, that is so crazy. I'll say it again. Make sure you get it. You are breaking the Sabbath if you heal someone that isn't just about to to expire and, and And you can picture the synagogue, can't you? You can picture the Pharisees. We're told they're ready to accuse Jesus. Like they're sitting here in the group and they're rubbing their hands and then he comes and there's the man with the withered hands and they're on tainter hooks and they're wondering, is he going to do it? Is he going to, is he going to, is he going to heal this guy? Is he, is he he going to break our view of this? And what does Jesus do? He does it. I mean, he confronts those Pharisees, he rebukes those Pharisees, and what does he do? And a display of perfect power. He heals this man's withered hand. He he does it. He shows that whole congregation that the Sabbath was a day for doing good. Now, okay, what do we learn with that? Is there anything in that for, for you and I just now? Well, I think I've actually spoken about this before, um, but uh, in the months after my own conversion to, to Jesus Christ, in fact, I'm sure I've spoken about this before from the pulpit, um, God, having saved me, went on to save a number of other young guys my, my same age. So I was converted, and then my brother was converted, and then his best friend was converted, and then there was a whole group of us saved, you know? And you can imagine how fantastic that was and how exciting that was. And what we would do is maybe about a dozen of us that we'd always sort of hang around together in the same group. What's my point? We always had the same routine for our Sundays. Always, okay? You would always, Sunday mornings, so you would kind of, you'd get up a bit late, but you get up in time for church. So we'd always, all of us, we'd go to church. Then you'd come home. What would you do? You'd eat far too much on your Sunday lunch. Then what would you do? Sunday afternoon. 
<laughs> I think everybody knows what I'm going to say as well. Uh, we slept. That's what we did. It's not sugar-coated. We had that sort of expression, you know. Uh, Sunday afternoons were made for sleeping. We would make sure that we got a good kip, all of us, on a Sunday afternoon. This is what I want us to say. This is what I want to say. We were wrong. It was a, a sign of spiritual immaturity. And that Sunday afternoons are not made for sleeping. And is it not the case that in the church of Jesus Christ, we in here are too often confusing a day of rest for a day of idleness? Are we not doing that? Are we not confusing a day of rest for a day of sheer inactivity? And and look what you've got before you here. Surely what you're dealing with here is an example for us to follow. What are we supposed to do? What does Jesus do here? He engages in acts of kindness. He ministers on the Sabbath day to people who are in need. Again, listen to the words of our confession. We're asking, what do we do on the Lord's day if we're not supposed to be sleeping? The people of God should engage in worship. We should engage in the duties all the day of necessity and the duties of mercy. Do you see it? Jesus on the Sabbath day, he does good. We, his people, his followers, we too are to be doing good on the Lord's day. I mean, this is hard, isn't it? I mean, this is a challenge. Can we build on this? I mean, what does that look like if we and I are supposed to show mercy on the Lord's day? Well, thankfully, that's for you to decide. But surely... Given what Jesus does in that synagogue, the people of God should be seeking to help those in need. I mean, just visiting the sick in the congregation or simply spending time with the marginalized of the congregation, even something like picking up the phone and phoning the people who might be lonely and isolated. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be brain surgery. It doesn't have to be difficult. But you see the point here in the text, don't you? Far from the day of rest being violated by acts of kindness. The day of rest, it necessitates these things, doesn't it? You and I should be doing good. And we should teach that to our children. And we should go out and put this into practice. Can you imagine what a witness it would be even to the city if they could see a congregation that Sunday by Sunday we rested from our usual activity. And we, 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 we forced ourselves to do that. And if they could see a congregation that, that worshipped the Lord Jesus all the day long. But if they could see a congregation that demonstrated practically the compassion of our God. What a witness that would be. So we see the grace of the Sabbath, friends. We see the mercy of the Sabbath. But last, we see here the Lord 
of the Sabbath. If you have been um, in attendance at London City Presbyterian Church uh, over the last couple of months, you perhaps will have noticed this, that what you're dealing with this morning is the fifth of five conflict narratives that we've been working through. You hear me? Five, fifth of five conflict narratives. You can see what I mean by that. There's been a, an awful lot of opposition to Jesus uh, in synagogue and where else? In the, the, the house in Capernaum, we saw that, and Levi's house, so, and so on. Now, this is something of a climax to that opposition. Do you see that the opposition has been building through these five conflict narratives and it's been getting worse and it's been getting worse and we get to this peak here where look what we read in the last verse that we read together. We are told that now such is the opposition against Jesus that the Pharisees, they go out and they begin to plot how they might now kill Jesus. You see that this is a this is a moment it anticipates what's coming later. Now, okay. The reason for this increasing opposition is pretty clear, isn't it? Like these religious leaders, they hate Jesus. Like they hate his power and they hate his authority and they hate his teaching. But really, it's the message we have in these verses about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ that I want us to think about. It's what we learn here about who our Savior is that I want you and I to ponder. Do you know what we have to do in order to look at Jesus' identity? You ready for this? What do we need to do? We need to go back to the imaginary shelf that I've got over here, and we need to bring back into focus that Old Testament example. Do you remember it? What was it? It was David. David, David. He goes into the temple. Really think about this. Goes into the temple on the Sabbath day. We learn that elsewhere. He takes the bread. He eats the bread. Jesus is citing that here. Here's my question for you. Ready? What's Jesus' point? Come on. Like, inciting this example a bit, what is Jesus' point here? Like, is it the point, well, if you're really hungry on a Sunday, you know, really hungry, it's okay, you're allowed to go in and then break the Sabbath. And Is that what it is? That's not what it is. What you have here, now listen to me, is surely a message about the identity of David. Who was David? He was God's chosen man. He was God's chosen king. And as such, he had the authority to make pronouncements about the Sabbath. God's chosen king, therefore he has the authority to to go into the temple on the Sabbath and take the bread. Wait a minute. Do you see what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees? He's saying to them, I too have that authority. 
I too am able to do this. I too am able to make pronouncements about the Sabbath. Why? Because in a greater sense than David, I am God's chosen man. I am God's chosen king. I am allowed to do this. Why? What does he say? Because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And yes, this is the fifth of five conflict narratives you've got in front of you. I want you to see it's something bigger than that. I want you to see that what you've got in front of you is better than that. Because what we've got here is the conclusion of a mini section about Jesus. So if you've been here over the last number of weeks, if somebody came in and said to you, what is the message of Mark chapters 1 and 2? What would you say? What would you say to that? The message of Mark 1 and 2. If you, what's the sermon series? Who is Jesus? If somebody was to say to you, what have you learned about Jesus? Who is he from Mark 1 and 2? What would you say? Is the message not that Jesus is Lord? Is that not what we've seen? Think, think about it with me. Remember the synagogue. What do you in the synagogue? We saw that Jesus is Lord over even the demons and the demon possessed. He's Lord. We saw in the healing of Simon's mother-in-law and the leper. What do we see? We saw that Jesus is Lord even over the sick. He is Lord even over the diseased. He is Lord. We saw in the healing and the cleansing of that poor paralyzed man. What did we see? We saw that Jesus is Lord, Lord, even over the forgiveness of sin. He is Lord. We saw in the calling of Levi that he is Lord, even over the most wicked and immoral. And what do we see here? As he stands in that synagogue, back in the synagogue, before these scheming Pharisees, we see now that he is also Lord, even over the day of rest. That this Jesus, this man before them, that he is Lord even over the Sabbath. And I hope this morning you see what this means for how you and I are supposed to use our Sundays. We are only using this day correctly if Christ and him crucified is our focus all the day long. Is that not what Sundays are about? We are supposed to all day long ponder the rest that he has secured for his people in their relationship with God. That's what Sundays are for, isn't it? We're supposed to ponder the rest that he endured the rest of the grave that made that reconciliation real. You and I, Sunday by Sunday, we are supposed to ponder that final an ultimate rest that will come to us in our heavenly Sabbath. That's what Sundays are about. We are supposed to, as the people of God, proclaim Christ, ponder Christ, praise Christ, and do so from morning till night, Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, until he returns. Friends, this is true. The free church, Presbyterians, we don't have a good reputation. Not on Sundays. We have the reputation of being harsh, legalistic, and negative. I say to you, let us change that. This is the day the Lord has made. 
Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us use it for rest. Let us use it for mercy. Most of all, friends, let us use it to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is David's greater Son. He is the Lord. The Lord even over the Sabbath. Let's pray.